Hey everyone, you are listening to the Covenant Grace Church podcast. We are a gospel-centered community on mission with Jesus in Port Elizabeth, South Africa. Enjoy the message. Awesome. We're going to turn in the in our Bibles uh, as a church. We've been preaching through John's Gospel, and uh, I, I really have thoroughly enjoyed our journey together. And uh, we're in John chapter sixteen, um, where we are. Continuing in the upper room discourse, the upper room discourse, um, a, a, a time where Jesus is preparing the disciples for his imminent departure. Jesus has been talking about going away, and the disciples are feeling a little stressed. So let's read our passage for today from verse 4 through to verse 15. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. He's talking about persecution. The context here is the world is going to hate you. If the world hates the master, the world will hate the master's servants. So he's warning them. I've told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him Who sent me, and none of you asks me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. And judgment concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom and insight into the knowledge of God. We pray, as you declared, that the grass will wither and the flowers will fail, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And we pray that this word would be your voice speaking to us, changing us, making us more like Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is about to face the hour of his suffering And hot on the heels of his suffering will be the disciples' suffering. The disciples will walk in the shoes of their master. If he suffered, they too will suffer. They will experience trials and tribulations. We see this in verse 4. But I have said these things to you that when their hour, which is the hour of persecution from the world and from the Pharisees, when it comes, you may remember that I told you. He's warning them. He's preparing them. Jesus is concerned for them. After all, Jesus is their Savior. In verse 6, he says, But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. They are feeling stressed. They are feeling concerned. But here's the good news of this passage. 
despite impending trials and troubles. And here's the good message for you today. In the world that is filled with trials and troubles, right? Here's the good news. Despite the trials, God has promised to send us help. And not just from a distant. And not just some random help. He's going to help by the Spirit. The helper himself will come to us. And so the first thing we see in this passage is the advantage of the Spirit. What advantage is there? This is an interesting word, the advantage. It's to your advantage, he says. Now have a look at it, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now let's think this through, right? Jesus spoke of the helper earlier in chapter 14. It's the same night though, right? We, we haven't moved out of the upper room. It's the same night. It's the same night when, when Judas left. It's the same night that Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Jesus is teaching them truth. And part of the truth is that he's going to go away, but even though he goes, he's going to send the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the living God will be with them. Now, now, how is this advantageous? I mean, thinking in just fleshly terms, I'm thinking Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. Having Jesus present with you, to me, sounds like a massive advantage, right? I mean, you in your corner, I've got Jesus in my corner. Who's, who's better off? Right? So, I mean, in the flesh, Jesus is God in the flesh. If we got Jesus with us, that sounds like an advantage. But despite this, God in the flesh is saying to them, and God in the flesh is saying to us, it's more beneficial for you if I go. How, Jesus? How is it more beneficial? What do you mean here? Well, firstly, two things he doesn't mean. The first one is that somehow the Spirit is more powerful than Jesus. No, that somehow the Spirit is of greater divinity than Jesus. No, not true. We, theologians talk about it this way. The Spirit is not ontologically superior to Christ. The very nature of the Spirit and the very nature of, God, of Jesus is they are both God. Two different persons, but one God. Equal in power, equal in divinity, Secondly, what Jesus is not saying, he's not saying that believers under the old covenant never had the Spirit. It could sound like that, you know, unless I go, you know, I'm going to send the helper, and, and, and it sounds like maybe believers in the Old Testament never had the helper, never had the Spirit. That would be a mistake to make. Why? Because no one can be a child of God apart from the inner working of the Spirit, the only way you become a child of God is that your heart is regenerated, that you are renewed and your dead heart is removed and the Spirit of God adopts you into the family of God. But what it does mean is that it means that there is a movement from the old to the new, which is why Jesus ties it to his going away. The whole argument about the giving of the Spirit is linked specifically with the language of, I'm going away, and when I go, I send. 
So what is so significant about the going away? Well, what's significant about the going away is it's transitionary. Jesus is going to secure something by his death. Jesus is going to purchase something. Jesus is going to establish a transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. And how we should not think of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit is that in the old there was nothing and in the new there is everything. No, that's not true. In the old, there was lesser, and in the new, there is greater. It's not a movement from nothing to something. It is a movement from the presence of the Spirit to more presence, more promise, more security, more blessing. So from lesser to greater, the same way the covenants move from lesser to greater. The same way the prophets, Moses was a great prophet, but Jesus is the greatest prophet. There is a movement in Scripture, and so too with our experience of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus ties it to his going away because he's about to secure the blessings of the new covenant. And the new covenant was promised, and the new covenant was prophesied, and there are numerous places in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah, and in Ezekiel, and in Joel, and all over the Old Testament, there are promises of a day where the law will be written on people's hearts, and where God will dwell in them, and that he will be their God, and they will be their people, and there will be spiritual gifts poured out on the church, and there will be spirit-empowered witness, and there would be spirit-empowered sanctification, and all of these blessings tied to the promise of the new covenant are now about to come past. Why? Because he's going to the cross, and his perfect life The spotless lamb will be nailed to a cross, and on that cross, as our perfect substitute, he will purchase every blessing of the new covenant, including the outpouring of the Spirit on all of God's people, Jew and Gentile. So, why is it advantageous? Well, it's advantageous because of the transition of covenants, which we don't live in today. (laughs) When you become a believer, we automatically are saved into the blessings of the new covenant, which is perhaps why we don't experience it the same way they did, from kind of lesser to greater. And the problem with us is we just don't realize how much we have. But also it's advantageous just from a logical point of view. So that's all theology, but, but just think about it logically. Logically, Jesus could not be in two places at once. So logically, Jesus was confined geographically. However, if he goes and he secures the blessings of the new covenant, no matter where his disciples are, the Spirit is with them. And who is the Spirit? It's the Spirit of God who is the helper, who is Christ in us, the hope of glory. And so by virtue of this incredible accomplishment, by virtue of Jesus securing the new covenant, believers all over the globe can be in the presence of Jesus through the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit with us is Christ with us. That's the advantage. Secondly, we see the conviction of the Spirit Jesus then says, when he comes, verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. 
I mean, just think about it. These are feeble, fragile disciples. At this particular point, they are feeling very fragile. And Jesus is commissioning them to go and bear witness. You guys, these 11, are going to be his witnesses. And they're not feeling very strong at this particular point. They're not feeling very bold at this particular point. And they've got to go and bear witness Throughout the Roman Empire, right? Throughout the Roman Empire, where there are two main bodies at work. You've got Rome and all of its power and glory. And within the Roman Empire, you have the strength of Judaism, the Pharisees and temple worship. And now you've got 11 with the gospel against Rome and against Judaism. And Jesus says, go and bear witness. Go and tell them about me. And what's the message? The message is, your Savior died. And the Romans are like, that's hilarious. What do you mean? Are we meant to worship a dead Savior? No, no, he's alive, but he died. And, 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 and the message to the Jews is, well, that, that doesn't make sense. God would never die. No, but he's alive, but that just doesn't make sense. And so they've got to take this message, which seems foolishness to Jews and to Greeks. It seems complete foolishness, the message of the cross. And I've got to go now tell it. Eleven of us are going to go and confront the Roman Empire with the gospel. How are you going to feel? Fairly intimidated, I would say. In some ways, we feel like that today, right? You're in your office block, you're in your building, you're in your community, you're on the sports field, wherever you live and work and play, it feels intimidating to tell people about Jesus, right? Tell them about how he's changed your life and transformed your life. You know, he died for your sins, he rose again, and now you need to worship him because apart from his saving work, you will never be right before a holy God. And sometimes it feels like, wow, what must we say? What must we do? What's the key? What's the strategy? Is there a strategy? Is there a right method? Is there a, a, a key to unlocking people's hearts so that they would believe? But here's the good news. The good news is it's not up to us. Yeah, Jesus says it's the Spirit who will convict the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. And even though we feel inadequate to tell people about Jesus, get this, our job is to get the gospel to their ears. It's God's job to get the gospel to their hearts. Amen? Let me say that again. It is our job to get the gospel to their ears. It's God's job to get the gospel to their hearts. This is the greatest news ever, at least for these feeble disciples. They're like, well, we've got to go and bear witness. And he's like, listen, don't worry, I've got this. The Spirit is going to come. He will help you to bear witness. And more than that, He's going to do the convicting. You don't need to. You don't need to convince people. He's more than capable. He's sovereign. He's Lord of salvation. He's Lord of the harvest. He's got this. You pray and you be faithful to the gospel. You get it to their ears. God will get it to their hearts. Look what it says. The Spirit will convict of sin. The reality of sin, he doesn't use the plural because he's talking about the condition of humanity outside of Christ. He will convict of sin 
Verse 9 through 11. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. That's the problem, right? And he will do the convicting. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will no longer see me. Well, you'll see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, here, these three aspects are actually critical to our gospel presentation. If you take out sin and you take out the finished work of Jesus, which is the accomplishment of righteousness, his life and his death, and then you take out the victory over sin and Satan, the ruler of this world, what's left? Not much, right? And, and I think there's a hint here that, that in our gospel presentation, we must speak of the reality of sin, of righteousness, and of coming judgment, which has already been secured by Christ's going away. He's going to go away, and the reason the Holy Spirit can now convict of sin is because sin has been paid for. And the reason the Holy Spirit can convict of self-righteousness, which is what the Holy Spirit's going to do, he's going to convict them of sin because they've placed their trust in self. A self-righteousness will never save you. And he's going to convict them of coming judgment because without the righteousness of Jesus, we will stand judged before a holy God. And all three aspects must be presented so that the conviction of the Spirit can work with the words of the gospel. It's interesting how he says, because the ruler of this world is judged. Church, hear me. It's not that in the end Jesus wins. Yes, that's true. But a better way of stating it is that in the end, we win because it's already won, like we sang. It's already done. Jesus has won. We are just living in the wake of his victory. The ruler of this world is judged. We are living in the last days. From the time of Christ's first coming to his second coming, we are living in the last days because the ruler of this world is already judged. His fate is sealed. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. The new covenant has been instituted. We are living in the blessings of the last days. Joel's prophecy has come to pass in chapter 2 of Acts chapter 2. The Spirit has been poured out. The, 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 the Spirit of God is working among people in the church. And the Spirit will convict and draw people to salvation. Can you see how this would have given courage to those disciples? And let me ask you, can you see how this gives courage to us today? Thirdly, the guidance of the Spirit. He says in verse 13, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, all the truth. There is truth. It's not your truth. It's not my truth. It's the truth. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. There is a established principle of truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. John 14. Now the Spirit is going to guide the disciples. The Spirit of truth is going to guide, and he will guide them into truth. Now for those disciples, the problem was the teacher is going away, right? <laughs> The teacher is going, the master who has been teaching them. What's he been doing for the last 30 years? He's been 
teaching. What's he been doing for the last upper room hours? He's been teaching, and they are trembling because the teacher is going. Well, how are we going to remember everything? Hey, Peter, did you write it down? No, I thought you were writing it down. What are we going to do? Was, were there voice recorders? No, right? What are we going to do? Ah, Jesus saves the day. Don't worry, guys. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into the truth. All the truth that I taught you. But Jesus, there's so much. You taught so much. How are we going to remember? No, the Holy Spirit's got this, guys. So firstly, for the disciples, the Holy Spirit is going to remind them of the life and ministry and work of Jesus, and they are going to record it. It's called the inspiration of the Spirit. And they're going to be divinely inspired to write and record the life and the ministry of Jesus. And they're going to use the Old Testament, and they're going to interpret the Old Testament in light of Jesus. And they're going to write a New Testament. They've got the Old Testament, but now Jesus has come, and he's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament, and now they're going to write a New Testament testifying of Jesus. We've seen God. And the Holy Spirit will come upon them, and they will write Scripture called the New Testament. Now, for us today, the same Holy Spirit doesn't give new truth. There's no need for new truth because we've got the truth. So, so, so it's okay. Don't worry. You, you don't need new truth. It's not going to help. What you need is a better understanding of the truth. So the same Holy Spirit doesn't give new revelation. He gives illumination. He's the spirit of truth. So he will illuminate the truth, which is in the Old and New Testament. And the Holy Spirit is the one divine author of both testaments. He inspired all 66 books. So that when you and I now read our Bibles, we should pray, Spirit of the living God. Pray like this. Holy Spirit, help me to understand, to love, and to apply what I'm reading. And the same Spirit of truth will come upon you and I and help us to see Jesus in all of his glory. The same ministry of the Holy Spirit. Listen carefully to me. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is not about goosebumps. Not at the front end, right? I don't mind that at the last, in the, in the, at the back end. Let me clarify. The, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is not just about feeling things. But feelings are important, right? But not right up at the front. Because if it's just feelings, what are you feeling? I don't know, I'm just feeling. Then you may as well go to a U2 concert or a Coldplay concert. Because the feels would be probably better than what you get in most churches. Because it's not about feels at the front end, right? What the ministry of the Spirit does is he leads us into truth, which then leads us to Jesus, which leads us to right thinking, right living, and then right feeling. Feelings do matter. 
Your affections are important. It's not just about loving God with your thoughts. You've got to love him with your heart. So your feelings do matter, but it's both. It's not either or. It's right thinking and right feeling, which go together. Listen to John Piper. I love this quote. He says, my feelings are not God. God is God. My feelings do not define truth. God's word defines truth. My feelings are echoes and responses to what my mind perceives. And sometimes, many times, my feelings are out of sync with the truth. When that happens, I try not to bend the truth to justify my imperfect feelings, but rather I plead with God, purify my perceptions of your truth and transform my feelings so that they are in sync with the truth. Finally, the mission of the Spirit. What's the ultimate goal of sending the helper, of securing the blessings of the new covenant? Verse 14, 15, he, the helper, will glorify me. He, the helper, will glorify Jesus, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And just in case you think what Jesus owns is just a little bit, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Just in case you think that what Jesus is doing is starting a new religion. No, no, this isn't something new. This is a continuation, which is why we have an Old Testament and a New Testament. And the Spirit inspires both because he's going to take what the Father is doing and all that the Father has is mine. And he's going to declare it to you. The primary mission of the Holy Spirit is to glorify Jesus in your life in the world until he returns. And hear me, he never gets tired of doing this. The Holy Spirit is never exhausted. He's not like you and me, right? He doesn't get tired or weary. He is every moment of every day passionate about glorifying Jesus. He never grows weary of glorifying Jesus. And he does this by magnifying, magnifying what Christ has done. And he helps us to see the, the language of magnifying is so that we can make it bigger, so that we can see. It's a little bit small, so what do we do? We magnify. That's what the Spirit does. He magnifies the work of Christ so that we see it and when we see it, we treasure it. Charles Spurgeon says this, I looked at Christ and the dove of peace flew into my heart. He's referencing the Holy Spirit. I looked at the dove and it flew away. He's commenting on this particular verse. The, the point of the Spirit, the mission of the Spirit is not to make much about the Spirit. Now, it doesn't mean we can't talk about the Holy Spirit. Of course, we can talk about the Holy Spirit. He's the third person of the Godhead. And it doesn't mean you can't pray to the Holy Spirit. We, we must. Holy Spirit, help me. Holy Spirit, strengthen me. Holy Spirit, guide me. But actually, the Spirit wants to glorify Jesus. 
He doesn't want to be glorified. That's not his mission. The mission of the Holy Spirit is to proclaim and point and magnify Christ. So if that's the truth, to be spirit-filled is to be Christ-saturated. If I meet someone and all they want to talk about is Jesus, if I, if I meet someone and all I ever get the sense of is that this person knows Jesus, this person loves Jesus, this person obeys Jesus, or at least this person wants to be more like Jesus, that is a spirit-filled person. It's impossible to love Christ, to want more of Christ, to be more devoted to Christ, to treasure more of Christ without the awakening and stirring and help of the Spirit. And I end on this. Notice in this last verse, verse 15, the triunity of the Godhead. Not just theologically, but practically involved in our lives. He says, all that the Father has. You got the Father? All that the Father has is mine, the Son's. Therefore, I said that he, the Spirit, will take what is mine and declare it to you. Listen, this is the privilege of the blessings of the new covenant. That we have not only been adopted into the new covenant, but now we have a new testament. And all that the Father is doing and all that the Son has done, we can see it. And we can taste it and we can know God. Who is God? Is God with us? Yes. Father, Son, and Spirit. How do we know? In the pages of the New Testament, through the blessings of the new covenant, we are a people who are filled with the Spirit and have the Word of God, the living, breathing, final Word of God. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Your word says, where does my help come from? And we declare, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, the Spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you. We are, we are the recipients of this divine intervention, of this almighty plan that you have poured out your Spirit upon the church and you said that your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Yes, we will. We will speak the truth of the New Testament, of the Old Testament. We will declare the word of God. We will be a people saturated with the word of God. And we will speak forth the word of God. And we thank you that, Holy Spirit, you are our helper. You are the one who convicts us and the world of sin. And it's our prayer today that you would make us more like Jesus. And so we invite you, even now, come Holy Spirit. And if you don't like to say that, just say, God, I need you. I need your help. We need your help, and you are the helper. Help us. Help us to navigate our way through this world. Help us to navigate life family life, work life. Help us to navigate the, the sin that still remains in our own lives. God, we are so 
grieved by our own sinfulness. We need your help. Help us, Lord. And we thank you that you have secured this help, that you are not reluctant to give this help. You are pouring out this help to those who ask. And so we ask you again today. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.